Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me back to the book of Acts as we continue our journey uh, through the fifth book of the New Testament. The book of Acts, the bridge between the Gospels and the letters or the uh, epistles. Book of Acts, Acts 13. Let missions begin unto the uttermost ends of the earth. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? We'll pick up reading in verse 13 of chapter 13. And uh, for now, at least, we will be reading all the way down through verse 7 of chapter 14. And then more later on. Verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from uh, Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, folks, that's all the invitation a preacher needs. Amen? (laughs) So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium they entered entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Father, we thank you so much for the lives of Paul and Barnabas and John Mark as we see them determined to live Great Commission lives. They would let nothing keep them from that purpose. God, what a testimony they are to the church today. May we carefully this morning evaluate what we give ourselves to. Lord, may we find that we give ourselves to that which will last and not to that which will perish. Help us to be your servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we saw that the disciples had gone to Galilee. You'll, you'll remember what had happened after Jesus had been raised from the dead. There at the tomb, when he appeared to the women, he told them to go to Gal- to, to tell his brothers to go to Galilee, and there in Galilee he would meet with his disciples and he would give them his last commands and his instructions for them. And of course we know that's exactly what they did. They left Jerusalem, they went up to Galilee, and Jesus gave the great commission to his disciples. Now just before he gave the great commission to the disciples... He was talking about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And they said, Lord, are you at that time going to return the kingdom to Israel? 
And he told him, he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my disciples, or, or you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost ends of the earth. Now, folks, I want you to understand what Jesus was saying there because if you've been keeping count in the chapters as we go through the book of Acts, you know that the narrative in the book of Acts is following the outline given in verse 8 of chapter 1. On the day of Pentecost, they bore witness to the Lord there in Jerusalem. And then they were all around Jerusalem, but they were still in the area known as Judea. And from Judea, they moved out to Samaria. They were in the region of Samaria when Philip got that command from the Lord to leave where he was and go to that desert road because God had a divine appointment for him on that road. And that's where Philip met up with the Ethiopian eunuch and led the eunuch to faith in Christ. Well, now beginning in chapter 13, we see the gospel beginning to go to the ends of the earth. And so again, I want you to take note of that as you read the book of Acts. We're just following that outline that Jesus gave in Acts 1.8. As we come to chapter 13, we see that they've been in a worship service at the church of Antioch. And while in that worship service, the the Spirit of the Lord spoke to them and said, I want you to set apart for me Saul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. Now you'll recall in Acts chapter 9 when Paul was converted that he was told at that time that he would suffer many things and be a witness to the Gentiles. And so it's very easy to understand why here in chapter 13 God calls Paul to go and be a witness to the Gentiles because that's what was said of him earlier. But I want you to remember from the Old Testament that all matters had to be confirmed by at least two witnesses. Remember when Jesus sent out his disciples on their preaching mission in Luke chapter 10? How did he send them out? He sent them out two by two. And so here he sends Barnabas along with Paul. And also Barnabas' family member, John Mark, the Mark who also wrote the Gospel of Mark, tags along. And Barnabas was such a good choice because we've seen from earlier in Acts that he was generous with his land gift to the church at the end of chapter 4. He was also a man who stood with Paul before anybody realized that Paul was a genuine convert. Everybody was still scared to death of Paul. And Barnabas came alongside of him and assured the congregation that Paul had indeed met Jesus. Plus, Paul would ha- uh, Barnabas rather would have related nationally and ethnically to the very first places they went on their missionary journey. Now, by the way, just as a side note, verse 9 in chapter 13 is where we find that Saul has another name, Paul. And henceforth in the New Testament, he will be called by that name. We know him today by that name, Paul, the Apostle Paul. Generally, we don't call him Saul anymore. Well, at any rate, Barnabas, Paul, and John Mark leave, and they go to Cyprus, one of the major islands in the Mediterranean Sea, and you'll notice that they go to the synagogues of the Jews first. And as they preach about Jesus, they run into great opposition from a man involved in the occult. And God strikes that man with judgment. And when the governing authority, the proconsul, sees this man struck by the judgment of God, he himself comes to believe in Jesus Christ. Now let's pick up today in verse 13 of chapter 13. 
In verse 13, we notice that John Mark deserts the missionary team and he goes back home. Now, later on, this is going to be the basis of a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. You see, when they get ready for their second missionary journey in chapter 15, Barnabas wants to take John Mark along with them again, and Paul doesn't because I guess Paul was afraid he would desert them once again. And so there's a sharp division between Barnabas and Paul, but God used that division for good because Barnabas decided to take along with him John Mark, and Paul chose Silas. And so what was one missionary team will now become two missionary teams. Now I'm not suggesting that the division was good, only that God brought good out of it. In verse 14, uh, we see Paul and Barnabas beginning this first missionary journey. And today what I want you to notice is that God leads. I want you to see how he leads and uses and blesses his servants when we are about his business. God leads, God blesses, and God uses his servants when we are about his business. Now, the first thing I want you to notice with me today, if you're taking notes, is the fact that they carried the gospel to the Jew first. Now, out beside that outline, what I want you to put out beside it is that they related to their audience. That's the application point for you today. They carried the gospel to the Jew first, and in doing so, we will see how they related to their audience. Now you'll notice that not just inside of Judea and Samaria, but all over the world where Paul was traveling, they would still take the gospel to the Jew first at this point. We've got to remember the Jews are God's chosen people and God was giving them every opportunity, every imaginable chance to respond to the gospel first. Now, Romans 9 gives a good synopsis of why they were meant to be evangelized first. Paul says in Romans 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so, God wanted the Jew... First, to have the opportunity of hearing the gospel because he wanted them to understand clearly that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. The road to the Jewish faith was supposed to dead end into the cross, dead end into Jesus, and they were supposed to see that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that they had been waiting for, and that all of those feasts and festivals and sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed forward to. And so God was gracious in allowing them to hear first. But what I want you to see here, folks, is how Paul had such a burden on his heart for his countrymen, for his brethren. Paul was so moved by the lostness of the Jews. He was so grieved in his heart by the lostness of the Jews. And I I guess the question that I would want to confront us with is when is the last time you or I have truly been grieved in our hearts over somebody's lost condition? When's the last time you've shed tears at a prayer altar, either publicly or privately, over somebody that was lost. 
Folks, when Paul thought about his countrymen, when he thought about his neighbors, when he thought about his brethren, he was stirred in his heart because he wanted them to meet Jesus and experience the new birth as he had done. He wanted them to know God and to be at peace with God. Do we really want people to find God? Do we want them to be at peace with God? That's what we're supposed to be about as New Testament believers. Romans 10 explains why the Jews rejected Jesus. Paul points out there that they chose their righteousness over God's. He says there beginning in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now before we're too harsh on them, let's remember that people all over the world today are doing the very same thing. Folks, people right here in the Bible Belt of America do the very same thing. How many times have you been sharing your testimony or sharing the gospel with somebody and they'll come back at you with a phrase that goes something like this. Hey, I'm a good person. I try to do what's right. I'm as good as my neighbor Jim over there. I'm as good as Sue. I know they go to church. I know they call themselves Christians. If they make it to heaven, I'm as good as they are. Surely I'll make it to heaven too. How many times have you heard something like that? I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody had given me an excuse like that. And they'll go on and they'll say, you know what, I I try to live a good life. I try to do the best that I can. I try to keep all the commandments. I try to love my neighbor as myself. And anytime I see anybody around me that has a need in their lives, I try to reach out to them and love them and meet that need. Again, I'm a good person. What are they trying to do? They're trying to establish their own righteousness. Rather than submitting to God's righteousness that's found in Christ. And it's not just Americans. It's not just people right around us that that do this type of thing. I'll never forget that testimony of Tom Knight after he got back from China. And he was sharing with us how he found many of the people in China. They were caught up in ancestor worship. They would go to their graveyards and they would carry money and food and put on the tombstones. He said some people who hardly didn't have two nickels to rub together or they didn't know where their next meal would come from, they would scrape together everything they had, all of their worldly belongings, all of their money, all of their food, and they would carry it to the tomb of one of their deceased loved ones and they would put it there. Because in their belief, they were thinking by providing for their loved one in eternity, somehow or another, it would mean that they would be provided for and looked after in eternity. Again, what is that? It's people trying to substitute their own plan of salvation, their own righteousness in place of what God has said. My point is, today we are still guilty of what the Bible is speaking of there in Romans 10. But not just in Israel, but wherever the Jews had moved, Paul, uh, God used Paul and Barnabas to try to evangelize the Jew first. When they refused, God sent the gospel to the Gentile. And that had been his plan all along. You'll remember in John 10, when Jesus gave that great discourse on being the good shepherd, he said, I'm the good shepherd, I know my sheep by name, and they know me. They follow me. He went on to say in that passage, he said, I have other sheep who are not of this fold yet, and I must go and gather them as well. What was Jesus talking about? He was talking about the Gentile mission, bringing the Gentiles in. 
And so again, that was God's plan all along to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And you know, I'm so glad that God's vision extended to the Gentiles because I'm a Gentile. Everybody today who is not a Jew is a Gentile. But again, God was given his chosen people the first witness. Now, in attempting to reach the Jew. I want you to notice from verse 14 and following some of the things that Paul did, some of his strategy. First of all, we see here how he reviewed their common history. He reviewed their common history. Now, his approach with the Gentile audiences was different. Later on when we get to Acts chapter 17 and we see Paul in Athens preaching to pagans, preaching to Gentiles. He doesn't start with the Old Testament because they wouldn't have had that knowledge. He goes all the way back to creation and he starts there with them. There wouldn't have been any point in starting with the Old Testament. They wouldn't have known about it. But with this group right here in chapter 13, that's exactly where Paul begins. He begins reviewing their own Old Testament scriptures with them. Now folks, that certainly says something to you and me about understanding our audience. If you're sitting down in the home of a church couple, there are some things that that you can review or go over... That if you're sitting down in the, in the home of an unchurched person, you may not be able to, to make some of those assumptions. But if you're talking about to somebody who's grown up in church all their life, been to vacation Bible school, been to Sunday school, they're still not a Christian, but they know the Bible, you can, you can help them to understand some of the, the, the big rocks in the Bible, the narrative of the Bible. But with other people, you have to dig deeper than that, and you have to go back further than that. I've told you before about that young man that was sitting in my office one day. And I was sharing the gospel with him, and he knew absolutely nothing out of the Bible. I, I said, well, you know John 3.16, don't you? What's, who's that? What's John 3.16? I quoted it for him. He said, I've never heard that in my life. He said, Pastor, remember, I've never, ever, ever been to church. I don't, I don't even have a clue what you're talking about. And finally, a light bulb clicked on. He said... Is that that sign they hold up at football games in the end zone that says JN316? I said, that's what they're holding up. And again, we went over that verse. Sitting in in another young couple's home one time, and it's not just young couples, it's a lot of different people today uh, in America. We're getting further and further away from the Bible, so you may have to lay more groundwork, but sitting in this one couple's home, behind their couch on the wall was this big, beautiful painting of Noah's Ark. It's that painting that's so popular. He had no clue that that was a Bible story. No clue at all. And so sometimes you've got to begin as though your audience has no idea of anything in the Bible. And then sometimes you can begin knowing that they have a basic understanding. And that's what Paul is doing here with this Jewish audience. He wants them to understand some things about their Old Testament. He he reviews some of their history and he points out to them first how Jesus was descended from King David just as God had said in the Old Testament the Messiah would be. They were looking for a descendant of David and Paul is saying, here he is, Jesus fulfills that prophecy. He also pointed out to them how the Messiah, according to the Old Testament, would have a forerunner, John the Baptist. Remember Isaiah 40 talking about the voice crying out in the wilderness? And he pointed out how John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. Then he pointed out how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah and how the Jews in Jerusalem ignored this and put him to death even though they had no legitimate grounds for doing so whatsoever. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 would have spoken to that. 
He taught about how God raised Jesus from the dead and how Jesus made post-resurrection appearances and how even in the Old Testament God said He would not allow His Holy One to see decay or corruption. And so again, He's just reviewing with them some of the Scriptures that they would have known. And He's trying to help them understand that Jesus fulfilled all of those Old Testament prophecies so he's relating to his audience he's relating to his audience next you'll see that he appealed to them to believe on Christ lest the scripture concerning the judgment of God be applied to them as well in verse 40 and 41 he says beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about look you scoffers be astounded and perish for I'm doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you he's pointing out here that God not only woos but God warns. Now this verse was originally spoken by Isaiah in light of the coming Assyrian invasion. And then later on Habakkuk used these verses here to speak of the coming Babylonian exile. And what Paul is doing, he's pointing out that just as God judged his people in the past for their unbelief, God will judge you if you don't believe. That's what Paul's trying to get them to understand. He's trying to remind them that God has done a marvelous work for the Jew through Jesus Christ. And if they scoff at Him, if they reject Him, they'll perish just as surely, just as certainly as their forefathers perished. Now look at the result there in verse 42 to 45. We see there a mixed response. Some were hungry to hear more. And again, what any preacher would love. They say, will you come back again and explain these things further to us? We want to hear you again on all these matters. They wanted to hear more. They were curious. God was working on them. Whereas at the very same time, there were others in the audience who rejected them and ridiculed them and mocked them. Folks, please do not think that everybody is going to listen to you or be responsive to your testimony. Too many Christians fail to witness of their faith because they think that somebody might oppose them well I've got news for you somebody will oppose you eventually remember they even oppose Jesus Christ everybody is not going to listen to you but some will and for the sake of those who will keep telling the story about what Christ has done in your life Jesus told a parable of the the seed falling into soil to illustrate not everybody's going to listen. He talked about the seed, some seed that would fall into bad soil. In fact, there were three different kinds of bad soil. And there was only one kind of good soil. And so Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand not everybody's going to listen. But here's what I want you to notice about Barnabas and Paul and John Mark. I want you to notice something about their lives. They lived lives that were missional. They were Great Commission Christians. They understood that their role as a believer on this earth was to be a witness. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you and I live our lives that way? Could somebody call you a great commission Christian? Folks, your life and my life is not intended to simply be about making a living and raising kids. Now, obviously, those are necessary and important functions in life. 
But what does God want of you? What does God want of me? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are to be ambassadors for Christ. And as we communicate the good news of the gospel, it is God that is making his appeal to others through us. Through our words. God is making his appeal. So you and I are to live our lives as ambassadors for Christ. That means I need to be very concerned about every single relationship that I have. And you need to be very concerned about every relationship that you have. Where is this person with Jesus Christ? Do they know Christ? I want to challenge you to do something this way. Think about one person, just one, one person that you need to be praying for that's lost. Do you, do you have anybody? Maybe written in the fly leaf of your Bible or anybody on a, on a prayer list anywhere. Do you have any lost person in your life whatsoever that you're praying that they would be saved? Do you have lost people in your family? Do you have lost friends? Do you have lost neighbors? Do you have lost co-workers? Do you have lost schoolmates? Of course you do. This week, begin praying for one of them. And share the gospel with that one person this week. One. I'm not asking you to go out and tell a hundred this week. Who's one person you can pray for and share your testimony with this week? I want to challenge you to do that. One person. And if you get to the end of the week and you have prayed for that individual and you've shared the gospel with that person and they have not listened to you, I want you to understand something. Understand that you have not failed. You'll only fail if you refuse to share. Live a missional life. They were missional. Now, secondly, I, I want you to notice, let's build off what we mentioned a moment ago. They were opposed. They were opposed. Pick up reading with me in verse 45. It says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning now to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They were opposed. And notice what they did first. Folks, they simply shook it off. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 10, 10? In Luke 10, 10, uh, Jesus said, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. I know a pastor over in Belmont went up to a, uh, a house and big, huge, hell's angels type motorcycle gang looking fella came to the big, huge guy, piercings and tattoos and everything all over him. And the guy began cursing them and said, I don't know why you're on my front porch, but get up, get away from my house. Max said he turned around and he took off his slipper and there was a column there on the front porch and he whack, 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 whack his shoe and put his shoe back on, walked down the steps and the guy said, come here a minute, what are you doing? And Max turned around and said, God tells me if you won't listen, shake the dust off my shoes and that dust itself will be a testimony against you in the day of judgment. God said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, come here, come here. What, what is it you're wanting to tell me? And Max had the opportunity to lead him to faith in Christ. But here they're opposed, they just, they just shake it off. 
We're going to be opposed at times. Some Christians will become disheartened if everybody doesn't speak well of them. But remember what Jesus said? He said, woe, woe to you if all men do speak well of you. Folks, we've got to keep in mind we live in an upside down world. We live in an upside down world that's calling good evil and evil good. And if you're trying to live for the Lord and live right side up in an upside down world, guess what? You're going to face some opposition. There was a time Billy Sunday was preaching some very hard hitting messages against sin and and some of his advisors came to him and they said Billy you gotta quit preaching this way you're preaching too hard you're rubbing the fur on the cat the wrong direction you know what Billy Sunday said he said then the cat needs to turn around (laughs) they shake it off then you'll notice they continue in their mission What an example to us. Don't quit. Just go to others who are ready to respond. If you come on Tuesday night, you go out with us on a care visit, you go to somebody's door, they slam the door in your face. I've had that happen before. Not much, but it has happened. Guess what? It won't kill you. Just go to some other place. Go to some other house and witness to them. We allow ourselves to become so easily discouraged. The writer of Hebrews reminds us. He reminds discouraged Christians. He says, you need to think about something. And thinking about Jesus and what Jesus suffered, he said, have you suffered yet in your life to the point of shedding blood? No, of course not. Keep going. Keep your eyes on Him. The fields are too white. Time is too short. We've got to press on with those who will hear. It's like what our International Mission Board tries to do. Our Southern Baptist International Mission Board, we try to have missionaries in all the countries of the world. But when some of those countries that have been closed to the gospel, all of a sudden the government changes. And whereas the country has been closed to Bibles and closed to to Christian missionaries, now all of a sudden it's open. Guess what? They try to flood that country with Bibles and missionaries. They try to strike while the iron's hot. They try to go to those who are hungry and will listen. That's what they're doing here. And and, and then look at verse 48. What a great verse this, this verse is. Verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Folks, the Lord's got to be working in somebody's life for them to believe. It's not a matter of how good of a salesman you are. Because as a good salesman, if you can talk them into it, somebody else can come along and talk them out of it. Is God working in their heart? Salvation is not simply a human decision or an endeavor. It's God working on that heart. Paul certainly believed that when he preached the gospel, God had certain ones in the crowd that God himself was drawing to them. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless my Father's Spirit draws him. Paul knew as he preached the gospel, maybe not everybody, but maybe a few in the audience, God was drawing to himself. And that's why in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul said, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. I go into these towns and I preach the gospel and they throw rocks at me. They reject me. They do all kinds of stuff against me. They put me in jail. But I keep doing all things for the sake of the elect because I know that God has certain ones ready to believe. Now, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, and I, and I really don't want to make this a sermon about what I'm about to mention, but in many denominations right now, and, and certainly within Southern Baptist life, 
there's this huge debate going on over Reformed theology or Calvinism. Are we going to be Reformed or are we not? Of course, our, our roots as Southern Baptists, we come out of a group known as the Particular Baptists that were very Calvinistic. That was our roots. We moved away from it. Some of our academic people like Al Mohler and others are trying to move us back to our roots. But we have Southern Baptists right now, some who are Reformed and some who are not Reformed. And, and that's okay. The Southern Baptist tent's big enough for all of those. But wherever you fall in this debate, let me at least say to those who are not Reformed to remember one thing. I've been in two meetings recently. One on a local level and one on a national level where pastors, pastors who ought to know better, shame on them, they ought to know better. The ones that were critical of Reformed and said something like this along the lines. They said, if Calvinists today were to have their way, in our convention, we would do away with all missions and evangelism. That is a false charge. Folks, even for the Reformed believer, for the Calvinist, they believe that, and I'm saying this because verse 48 here, what it says at the end of the verse. Not only does God have his remnant, his elect, but God also ordains the means to reach them. The Calvinist would say the means to reach them is the preaching of the gospel. That as you go and you do evangelism and you do missions and you preach the gospel the elect are going to step forward and see the light and come to faith in Christ. So don't ever get caught in that group of Baptists. If you're not Reformed, don't ever be guilty of being caught in that group saying to a Reformed friend, oh, you care nothing about missions and evangelism. That is false. But again, what you've got to see, whenever the apostles preached the word, they believed God had certain ones ready to believe. Later on in chapter 18, you're going to see Paul carry the gospel to Corinth. And it caused quite a stir. Now keep in mind something. They didn't even have a church there yet at Corinth. That night in a vision, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Paul, I want you to keep on preaching the gospel in this city because I have many in this city who belong to me. Now think about that. The work of evangelism and missions in Corinth hadn't been done yet. There was no church in Corinth yet. And yet God was able to say, you preach the gospel in this city because I've got a lot of people in this city who are mine. And so again, my point is, whether you're reformed, whether you're not, wherever you are in this debate... Keep on preaching the word, persevere, know that you'll be opposed, but keep on anyway because there are certain ones that you're sharing with and certain ones that I'm sharing with that God is working on their hearts and will work on their heart through your sharing and they'll come to believe. You and I can have the confidence that the gospel will not fail. I might fail, and you might fail, but the Word of God will not fail. Third thing I want you to see. They pointed people to Jesus. I want you to read with me verse 8 and following. We didn't read this earlier. 
Chapter 14, now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lycaonium, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he, he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They refuse to allow men to turn toward them and make too much of them. They kept the focus on Jesus. Now folks, that's a sign of genuineness among spiritual leaders. Who are we trying to preach? Ourselves or Christ? Be very suspicious of any pastor, any evangelist, any minister, any Sunday school teacher that all they're interested in doing is building a gathering around themselves. Now sometimes somebody might do that because they just... They have a poor self-image, and when people gather around them, it makes them feel better about themselves. But others, it's still wrong. Others do it more maliciously. They want the following. They want the attention. And here we see that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark would not receive the attention. They kept pointing people to Jesus. Folks... Men and women have feet of clay. That's why I'm also so against these people when you go and witness to them and they say something like, Preacher, I would never join a church. I would never get involved in organized religion anywhere because just look at Jim Baker or Jimmy Swaggart, or they might name a number of others who disappointed the Christian community. And they'll use that name as an excuse of why they're not going to become a Christian. Never put your attention on a man or a woman. People will disappoint you. God won't. And that is why in Romans 5, Paul says, they who put their trust and hope in the Lord will never be disappointed. Don't give the power to any person to affect your relationship with God. Don't give that kind of power to anybody. It's misplaced. When somebody says to you, as you're sharing the gospel... The church has too many hypocrites in it. Now think about that. You can say, so are, so are you going to give perceived hypocrites the power then to keep you away from the Lord? That's one of the most foolish excuses I've ever heard in my life. You're going to let the very people that you criticize keep you from God. Now think about how absurd that is. Don't give anybody that kind of power over your life. Paul and Barnabas didn't allow themselves to become the focus. Now in pointing people to Jesus, I want you to notice what else they did. We're going to draw a line here over to verse 21. Verse 21 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In keeping the focus on Jesus, what did they do? 
They strengthened the church. They strengthened the disciples. They encouraged them. They pointed out to disciples that the way of suffering, the way of hardship will sometimes be the way of the Christian life. Verse 23 says, they appointed elders. Then they went back to the church at Antioch, the mother church who sent them out on missions. They gave them a status report, an update on on how the mission to the Gentiles had gone. You see, even though everybody in the church at Antioch there hadn't gone with them, the church at Antioch still had a part in it. They were the sending congregation. But notice what's going on here. Why do I include this comment about the church when I say they kept the focus on Jesus? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16. What did he say he would build? The church. In being a blessing to the church, in encouraging the church, in strengthening the church, you're blessing the Lord. You're being a blessing to the very organization that Jesus said he would build and work through on the earth. So when you love the Lord, what do you do? You also love the church. So in keeping the focus on Jesus, they they went back and they strengthened the disciples in the church. Now, I want to go further than that. And again, I'm making a connection here. Last week, I spoke against, I spoke against same-sex marriage out of Romans 1. There's a lot more in Romans 1 than just that topic. Paul talks in Romans 1 about those who refuse to acknowledge God, They refuse to honor God. They refuse to respect Him or listen to Him. And they do not show gratitude to God. Now, this morning when you came to church, and in any city in the land, when you came to church this morning, what were most people doing? Most people. They're jogging. They're cutting their grass. They're going to ball game. They're doing everything but coming to church. Now what I'm about to say is for those who make make non-church not going the pattern of their life, okay? The pattern. They just don't go. They're out doing everything else but gathering together with God's people and worshiping God. What's going on there? They are refusing to acknowledge God, to honor God, to worship God, and to give thanks. Because that's what we're doing when we gather for worship. And we're commanded in the Bible to gather corporately for worship. People who choose not to do that as a way of life are falling into that Very identical condemnation in Romans 1 that we started looking at last week. And when Paul talks in Romans chapter 1 about what their outcome will be if they continue in that direction, it ought to make chills run up and down your spine. It ought to be frightful. But those who who make this right here the non-pattern in there, who don't go anywhere. They're failing to acknowledge God and honor God and show gratitude. What Paul was trying to do and what all the other New Testament writers were trying to do in keeping the focus on Christ, they would always connect new believers to a local body of believers. Because that's where we grow. We grow together by studying the Word together, by recognizing God, honoring God, giving thanks to God, and praying for one another. We grow together. And so you can't keep the focus on Jesus without also having a focus on 
the church. The two go together. Be sensitive to your audience. Relate the gospel to those around you. What do they know? What do they not know as you share the gospel with them? Start where they are and move them to where you want them to end up. But the real point is, what do you and I need to do to be missional with our lives? To be a great commission Christian. Are you a great commission Christian? If not, you've got something to pray about in the invitation time. If you're not a great commission Christian. There are some adjustments that you and I need to make. Also, don't take it personal. You might be witnessing to a family right now or to an individual right now. And they're not lit, they're giving you the stiff arm. Don't take it personal. And certainly don't give up sharing the greatest news ever because you encounter one or two people who won't believe. Just go to others. Keep the message about Jesus and use every opportunity to connect them to a church. If not this church, a church somewhere. Keep the focus on Jesus and connect them to a church where they can grow.